0: Wonderful. Well, welcome. We started our previous classes with a beautiful chant that Matthew taught, and I thought, let me teach you a different chant that uh, has three Hebrew words and a t- translation. It's from the Song of Songs. The Hebrew words, it's by uh, my friend Rabbi Shefa Gold. The Hebrew words are, Hinach Yafa Rayati. I'll teach that to you, which means, you are so beautiful, my friend. Mm-hmm. And when you study the Song of Songs in our traditions, both our traditions, I believe, it's it's the love poetry of two individuals, but it's also seeking the face of the beloved everywhere in the universe. It's about you are so beautiful to God, to the universe, on any level where you perceive the beloved. That's what the Song of Songs is speaking to. And so, uh, I thought that would be a lovely thing for us to sing to begin. Mm-hmm. And the words are, Hinach, Hinach, Yaffa, Yaffa, rayati. 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 That's right, Hinach, Yaffa, Rayati Hinach, Yaffa. And the English is, you are so beautiful, my friend, so beautiful. Mm-hmm. So here's how it goes.
1: Hinach, Yaffa, Rayati Hinach yafar, hinach yafar ayatim, hinach yafar, and then it goes down like this, hinach yafar ayatim, hinach yafar, Hina yafar ayatim, hinach. Ya fa in akh ya fa rayati in akh ya fa padbi in rayati in akh ya fa in fa rayati Hinachya yafa and it goes down yafa
0: That's the whole chant in English it would be like this You are so beautiful
1: my friend So beautiful You are so beautiful my friend So beautiful. You are so beautiful, my friend. So beautiful. You are so beautiful, my friend. So beautiful.
0: Now we're going to sing it. First, just think about somebody you love or somebody if you're feeling bold, right in the room here, because this isn't about seeing with our eyes. This is the beholding with our souls. Enoch Yafar
2: Ayati.
1: Enoch
2: Yafar
1: Ayati.
2: Enoch Yafar
1: Ayati. Enoch Yafar Ayati.
3: Let's
2: sing
0: it to the world today. You are so beautiful, my friend, so beautiful,
2: you are so beautiful. my
1: friend so beautiful you are so beautiful my friend so beautiful you are so beautiful my friend so beautiful
0: beautiful. let's sing it to our own souls
1: you know they're kind of shy See, so you have to coax them out into the light sometimes. Inach Yafarayati. Inach Yafar. Inach Yafarayati. Inach Yafar. Inach Yafarayati. Inā Ya va Rayati Inavya One more
0: repetition Since we're all made in the divine image then when we see that divine image we're beholding the beloved right each of us. So let's sing it to every child of God in this room. You are so beautiful,
2: my friend, so beautiful.
1: You are so beautiful, my friend, so beautiful. You are so beautiful, my friend. So beautiful, you are so beautiful, my friend, so beautiful.
4: So just staying with that quality of belovedness for a few moments longer in the silence. Feeling your heart smile. This prayer, this line from the Song of Songs, be our prayer. May we say it to one another. May we say it across borders and boundaries. May we say it across old lines of theological division. May we say to each other and to all the world, You are so beautiful, my friend. Amen. Amen. You're so beautiful, my friend. So are you. <laughs> <laughs> Inside and out. <sighs> well, welcome back. Um, how many of you are here for the first time? Great, great. Um, so we might just say a little word of review where we've been for if, if the terrain is new to any of you. This is our third week together. Uh, exploring Jesus and the, the Gospels within the original Jewish context and roots, and we've been working to peel back layers of um, accretion and assumption and to look with fresh eyes at how, um, how the story of Jesus, this, this Jewish reformer, uh, how he's a universal human treasure that doesn't belong to only one tradition or the other, but that he belongs, first of all, to the Jewish people, because those are his people. <laughs> that's that's the soil he came from, um, and he belongs to the Christian people as well, of course. Um, but how can he be a, a shared gift um, that isn't a bludgeon? Um, how can Christianity be enriched by understanding the Jewishness of Jesus? And um, how might Jewish folks uh, celebrate this this one of their own? Um, Receive it in re- a whole new way. In a whole new way. It doesn't that, mean becoming Christian. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and to celebrate this figure again as a universal human treasure. Um, and, and so the, this past week, um, the first week we looked at sort of peeling back layers and looking at the historical Jesus afresh. <coughs> and um, uh, so that distinction continues to be
0: very useful. The historical Jesus Versus the theological Jesus, the Jesus of, as you would describe it, um,
4: uh, the of Christian meaning making, we might say, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that 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 the the meaning that is drawn out as the early generations of Jesus followers reflect on him theologically um, and, and and craft a theological understanding of him um, that that. Um, What do I want to say that enhances um, for Christians, their understanding of him, but still is not the same thing as who he was just purely as a person of history. And so we talked about the distinction that some scholars make between the Jesus of history and for those in the Christian tradition, the Christ of faith. Um, But the big distinction we made was understanding the Gospels are not eyewitness reports, which is what Christians thought for centuries upon centuries. Um, but they are actually um, later developed tradition and that all of the Gospels were written between 40 to 70 years at a minimum after the life of the historical Jesus, Um, not by eyewitnesses, but by uh, by later followers who worked to incorporate material circulating in oral tradition and early sayings collections into these four narratives that later became canonical scripture. But we have to remember, for the first Christians, they had no written Gospels. Um, they had no Christian canon. Their canon was Jewish scripture. Um, and so the early followers of Jesus um, were following this way that he taught without being dependent on texts that told the story of Jesus. Um, so the question we asked last week uh, was, if, what, what did the Gospel, which means good news, What was the gospel for Jesus as opposed to the gospel about Jesus? So later Christians develop a gospel about Jesus, what he means for them. But for Jesus, when he was proclaiming the gospel, what was he proclaiming? He wasn't proclaiming himself. Uh, We saw he was proclaiming the kingdom of God. And so we looked last week at what kingdom of God meant within a Jewish context and all the different ways it could be interpreted, apocalyptically or mystically. Um, And so we looked at how Jesus... Apocalyptically,
0: mystically, or politically, or or nationalistically. It could mean it on any level.
4: And so we tried to peel back layers and look at, well, what was this proclamation of of God's Malkut, God's kingdom, um, for the Jewish Jesus? And that's sort of where we left off Mm -hmm. last week. And what we want to do now, we want to start turning towards the the four gospels as literary texts so um, remembering that jesus when jesus shared the good news he wasn't handing out the four gospels of matthew mark and luke um, he was proclaiming the kingdom the inbreaking reign or kingdom of god and then some generations later uh, followers in this rabbi's way said we need to get the story on paper and so they started putting the story down so we want to start turning towards those four stories and looking at what each one was attempting to do, how they were framing Jesus within their Jewish context and understanding. So we want to start today specifically with Mark's Gospel because that's universally accepted by scholars now as the earliest of the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, It's the earliest, it's the the simplest, it's the sort of most condensed and, And I've got a quotation here I want to start with from uh, a bishop in the Episcopal Church, John Shelby Spong, and he says helpfully, the Gospels are not chronicles of history remembered, but rather proclamations of a community of faith designed to say that the yearned-for kingdom of God had dawned for them in Jesus. And so when we read these texts, again, they're, they're not intended as eyewitness reporting. They're collecting and shaping stories that were handed down about Jesus, and they're shaping them to to make a specific proclamation about who Jesus was for them. Um, So these are are stylized accounts. Mm -hmm. Um, They're not always working with literal history. They're working in highly symbolic ways, and they're working in a highly condensed way. They're condensing this whole ministry and life into um, a few pages of narrative. A good story. Yeah, into a good story, right? (laughs) um so so we're going to turn to mark and yeah yeah uh,
5: is that like halacha, the condensation into a gospel
4: uh no it's not halakha
0: because halakha is not st- uh, the story halakha is the practice it's more like the hebrew word agada. agadah, mm. agadah is, are the stories that we develop about our tradition Halakha are the specific practices that we develop. Oh, okay. So this is, this is more like, and this is actually an important rabbinic term of the first century. There was halakha, which means literally the way, and we're going to get to that because early Christians also refer to what they were doing in Greek as the way. That term already existed within Judaism. Halacha, which usually gets translated as Jewish law, literally means the way. The the the, the doing, the, the the walking.
5: The practice. The
0: practice. Okay. Uh, but it's 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 a um, it's a very active word halakha rather than the static word of the law, if you follow what I'm saying. So that's why it's not a great translation. So halakha, which we understand in, in contemporary English as Jewish law, is the practices, the commandments, the ways Jews are supposed to live as Jews. And that halakha encompasses the entire, uh, com- the entire um, uh, enterprise of being a person. Right? It's how you get up in the morning. It's what foods you eat. It's how your ethical behavior should be managed. It's how you worship. It's how you mark the calendar. All of that is halakha, which is better translated as the Jewish way. Okay. And the Jewish way is not fixed. It's in debate all the time. There are famous rabbis, such as the most famous are Hillel and Shammai, who are constantly debating what the halacha should be, what the Jewish way should be. And so even to this day, debating halacha, developing halacha, is an incredibly alive activity. In the, Jewish, in, the, in the Jewish religious world. Next to halakha, our tradition has a term called agada. Now, you might recognize the sound agada from Passover. Hagadah, right? The, the, the Passover book is called the hagadah, which means the telling. Hagadah means the telling. And agada are all the legends, stories, Midrash, which means imaginary uh, uh, creative expansions on the text. Uh, and so Judaism has a huge body of Agada, which are all the stories we tell about the stories that we tell. And again, <laughs> it's a living tradition. And why you need to know that, again, this is, I'm going to say this over and over because this is my anchor. This, call, this course is called A Rabbi and a Priest Study the Gospel." What, why you should know this is because the early Jews, who were followers of Jesus' way, Jesus' halacha, right? Jesus' derech, Jesus' path, this path, uh, were Jews. And so they created a form of literature, the Gospels, which are, which are an agadah. They are a telling on the telling. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to do today, we're going to do a very close reading of the text. And I'm just going to take us to all these, to dozens of what we call in now hyperlinks, you know, where <laughs> it, if, we, if this book was on a computer screen, then there were, you'd click on that word, and it would lead you to everywhere in the Hebrew Bible or in contemporaneous rabbinic literature that relates or in, informs that phrase, because these writers were writing in that context. So our go- and, and these these the, the the biblical literature was the um, uh, body of literary and sacred knowledge that they had at, in order to construct their new their their latest version of what it means, and what it means is that Jesus is the you know the where Judaism is going to go now but it's all in a Jewish context by Jews. So by doing a close reading, um, uh, we may get through one verse today,
2: (laughs) or 10.
0: (laughs) The point is, in a course like this, we're not going to be able to study the whole Bible, right? That's a lifetime. But but the goal is to contextualize the gospel in its Jewish context. Steve? I'm just
3: wondering, another, another anchor, Jewish anchor, Another Jewish anchor. Might be, and would you say, would be uh, Midrash, too? Because yeah. there is, yes. Yes. Uh, there are expansions on verses, which is similar. Midrashim have their roots in verses, right? Right. Biblical verses. Yeah. And so, so, do you find in the. In the I'm going to restate
0: what Steve said, because I, I understand that some people were listening to the tape so they can hear it better. There's another crucial Jewish term called Midrash. Midrash comes from the Hebrew root Lidrosh, Darash which means to seek or to interpret or to question. It means all of those things. Midrash is uh, an interpretation. And uh, the, the Jewish way of studying the Bible is to take a text. And if there are any gaps in that text, or creative anomalies, or a way to expand on the text, then you do something called Midrash. You expand interpretively on the text. Midrash is in the realm of Agadah. Um, They are sometimes interchangeable words, but you should know the word midrash, which means a creative expansion or interpretation of the text. And it would be fair to say in many regards that the Gospels are midrashim, creative expansions and interpretations based on, and who interprets? Whoever is, we interpret based on our moment. I interpret Torah creatively based on being a Jew in the 21st century in North America, Mm -hmm. right? And so that's how, so this is about Jews in
4: Judea under Roman rule in the first century. Yes, John. Just just really quickly to respond to that before we do another question. Um, The gospels, we'll see that midrashic process happening as we move through each gospel. So mark where we're going to start today. As I said, it's the shortest and earliest of the narrative gospels. And um, we'll see. Interestingly, there are lots of things that aren't in Mark that Christians take for granted. Um, Mark begins with a fully grown adult Jesus being baptized at the hands of Yohanan the Dipper, John the Baptist, and that's where the story begins. And and there's no story of a birth of a childhood. Yeah, like where's the baby that. Jesus? Right. Not in Mark. Not in Mark. Um, Mark's gospel. Is lacking a lot of things that, that Christians think are, are central to the teachings of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount the Beatitudes aren't there. The um, Lord's Prayer that's at the heart of all our liturgy isn't in Mark's Gospel. Um, and Mark's Gospel ends with um, the women coming to Jesus' tomb, and we'll save all these stories for much later in the course, and they find it empty and they run away terrified, and that's the end. And there are no appearances or any of that. And so a lot of the things that we think are absolutely central aren't there. But then we see the the later gospels go oh well here's here's a gap we can fill in creatively right here's more of the story we can tell here's a place we can expand Um, or here's a place where oral tradition that mark wasn't aware of can now be woven into the tale and so we see the gospels expanding filling in the gaps and that process continues even after the christian canon is formed then midrash are developed around Mary. They say, well, what about the childhood of Mary, the mother of Jesus? And then you get whole um, proto-gospels that are telling the the pre-story. And so um, absolutely, that'll be going on in March. So for
0: students of Judaism, does this sound familiar? We do the same thing. We have so many midrashim. Like, what do we know about Moses, for example? He's born. There's this amazing story about being taken in, floating in the Nile. And then the next thing we hear is that and when Moses grew up, he went walking among the people. That's what, we don't know anything else from like infancy to young adulthood. So we over the centuries, the Jewish tradition has told more and more elaborate stories. And the stories, by the way, these are stories. They don't have to be consistent.
2: <laughs>
0: it's the hobgoblin of little minds. Uh, they don't have to be consistent because they're stories. And stories exist to teach a lesson. Or to uh, illuminate a teaching, mm-hmm. and so similar to the Christian tradition, mm-hmm. the Jewish tradition over the next centuries after the, after the sacred books are completed and therefore fixed,
2: mm-hmm.
0: every gap wants to be filled. Mm-hmm. I think that's the way our consciousness works, right? We don't like having gaps. We want to know. We want to know the backstory. We want to know what happened. So, uh, Joan.
5: I just wondered who who is um, allowed to the interpretation
4: who is allowed to do the interpretation (laughs) so that ranges in the christian tradition you know we've got such a fragmented tradition so to speak so it depends on which stream of christian teaching or tradition you happen to inhabit so in the roman catholic tradition the answer is going to be different from in the anglican tradition is going to be different from in the baptist tradition who is allowed to interpret Um, with the protestant reformation um, The idea was the Protestant reformers wanted to put scripture in the hands of the people and allow everyone to read the scriptures and interpret on their own. Um, The Anglican tradition always sort of inhabits a sort of middle zone between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. And so, um, for example, in, in some of the mainstream traditions, there's a real emphasis on going to accredited seminaries and studying under you know professors within the academy who are going to impart you know scholarly academic understanding of this tradition to the people who will then be in leadership translating and interpreting it um, to their congregations. Now in a lot of Protestant traditions, independent Protestant traditions, you just get a call and you just trust the inspiration of the spirit and you just read the text and you interpret it. Um, so you let the spirit move you. Right. So so there's there's a range, you know. Um, depending on where you're situating yourself in in Christian tradition. And and let me give a a broader
0: answer to that. Everyone's allowed to. Everyone. What happens is only with the hindsight of history do we find out which um, interpretations became mainstream, became authoritative, which church council or which rabbinic body gained enough authority to say, this is the way, and that's not it. right? And so if you can imagine countless tributaries, some of them continue flowing into the present. Others have dried up or have stopped being read or went underground. Or went underground. underground right, A lot of mystical traditions, actually, it's a good image. A lot, of, a lot of these tributaries might be water that went underground and then resurfaces at a later time. But we, everyone's allowed, and only with the hindsight of history do we discover which one's gained um, authoritativeness. Does that make sense?
5: But you don't have to be in a clergy-type situation to. The, well,
0: uh, not in our place. No.
5: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And, and again, however, however, Joan, and this is important. Um, for me to respect and be interested in your teaching, I have to know that you know what you're talking about.
1: <laughs>
0: right. This isn't about everybody's the same. Some people have studied Shakespeare, know it backwards and forwards, and can make informed and connected comments about the body of work. To do good midrash, you have to know your Bible, and you have to know your sources. Um, Anyone can do midrash, but to do what I would call good midrash is someone who's mastered their sources, and who is then... It's, it's the same as being someone who can conduct an orchestra. It's like, sure, you can get up there.
2: Uh,
0: but uh, if you don't know what the string section is supposed to, and, what, and who said this before and who, uh, then it has less weight in say my, I respect it, it's fun, it's good, but it's not necessarily something that I would, um, I would give more weight to someone who had put a lot of time into knowing the sources. I think that's a fair
4: thing for me to say. Which right. is why we send people to rabbinical schools and <laughs> seminaries so they can immerse themselves in the tradition not because they're special and have you know super secret knowledge, but because they're willing and able to give the time to be immersed at a level of depth that they can then transmit you know in a way that's that's tra- trustworthy and speaking for myself, having done it now for decades, I feel like a total beginner
2: <laughs>
0: um there's we have a thousand years of tradition here it's like. It's a sea of Torah, as our tradition refers to it, the sea of Torah. And you dump, jump in, and you swim where you can, and you pick up what you can. And, but, but if we have an image of a living tradition, then there's a lot of people doing this. And so somehow it moves forward. But uh, it is really... So, so at the same time as saying you need to know what you're talking about, I, on one, another level, don't feel like I know what I'm talking about most of the time. <laughs> and,
3: and
4: we live at a different time, where once upon a time, this knowledge, everyone couldn't read, and everyone didn't have books, and everyone important. didn't have an access to libraries. And so, you know, you you had to send someone somewhere to be trained by people who knew this stuff. We live in a radically different world oh, where there's the democratization of knowledge and a lot of information that, you know, you could only read that book in the library at the rabbinical school. Like, you weren't going to find it Now... You, you Google it and everything comes up. Now you these most obscure academic books, you go on Amazon.com and it's on your front porch the next day. So there's a democratization of knowledge in our time where um, what we once used to have to kind of hold in, the, you know, in these academic spaces now is getting That's to right. spill over into the world <coughs> in really exciting ways.
0: That's right. And so one of my favorite phrases is, given the unprecedented nature of the availability of information today, is, I wonder what's going to happen next.
5: Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: We've never been in this situation before. Right.
5: That just reminded me of a question I've had these last few weeks. I'll repeat what they say. But just, if you could just, like, what it was like societally back in the time of Jesus as far as this transmission of knowledge. Uh, Great question.
0: Uh, This is a great question. As far as the transmission of knowledge today, we can Google it, Mm -hmm. right? As far as the transmission of knowledge 2,000 years ago in, in, in the Roman Empire, how many people were literate? Who had access to these texts? Um, you want to add something? I
5: just want to say that in those times when there weren't books, and we've lost it a lot, people actually like, learned it. In
0: that time when actually, there weren't like, books, yeah. people had to learn it by heart. Memorize, memorize. Memorize. Right. That's right. And
5: they listened to stories, and they knew. You know, they then they told the story.
0: They listened to stories, and then they told the story. However, Patricia, it's important. It's important. The oral tradition was crucial, central. Storytelling was how how our heritage and traditions were transmitted. We don't today. We might minimize stories and want to go for. Give me the list of facts. But storytelling was the medium through which the tradition and what it stood for was communicated. We we want to minimize storytelling because then it's only a story. That's our ridiculous bias, uh, as uh, you know, as uh, sort of being educated in the secular academy. Um, so yes, that's crucial about stories. At the same time, it's crucial to understand that there were keepers of the sacred literature. They were called scribes. They knew how to write them. They knew how to read them. And in their very rarefied, you know, their, you had, it wasn't easy to be a scribe. Right? You had to be utterly literate. That was not common. And the tools, the scribal tools, were expensive and precious. And so not only did you have to know how to read it and how to write it, but you were also the bearer of how to interpret it. So the scribes, who we first hear about in the book of Ezra, well, we hear about them earlier in the Bible, the Levites and the scribes. But then we really hear about them in the book of Ezra, which takes place after the Jews have returned from Babylonian exile and have reestablished themselves in Jerusalem around the year 400 BCE. And someone named Ezra writes a book. He was a leader at the time. And he speaks about how the scribes had a copy of the Torah, and it was read aloud in the public square. Um, That's when we first hear about our tradition being a written, a fully written tradition. And the scribes were the keepers of that tradition. The scribes get another name, rabbis. Okay? (laughs) Rabbi and scribe are synonyms. They get another name, Pharisees. Okay? Pharisees, parshanim in Hebrew, are a sect, right, which is not a hereditary sect. Anyone could become a Pharisee by going to the academy. And you rose based on merit. And you were part of essentially a high society Mm -hmm. who were keeping the sacred texts, bearing the, the oral law, the interpretation. And there weren't many of these texts around. Right? Copying a Torah was crucial, because if one wears out, you didn't have that many. Think about book burnings in the Middle Ages. That's not, that, that means you lost your textual heritage before the printing press. Right? Uh, this was, we, our, my modern perspective is so ridiculously, utterly different, since there's no scarcity of sources of information. You print another <laughs> book, you, you know, it's like, no, so the Pharisees, the scribes, and the rabbis are basically the same thing, okay? I think that's a crucial piece of background for you to know. Who were the keepers of the sacred knowledge and stories? Does that make sense? Yeah. When you read about the rabbis, some of them were itinerant. Some specialized in agada, storytelling. Some specialized in, ha- in halacha, in Jewish, specifics of Jewish practice. There's a great Talmudic story about one rabbi bemoaning the fact that he's an expert in halacha and nobody comes to his lessons. Uh-huh. But, but this other rabbi who's an expert in haggadah has overflow crowds all the time. <laughs> right? So picture a, 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 um, a category, a class of people <laughs> who are the keepers of the lore and knowledge in a society that is based mostly illiterate. Mm -hmm. And you have a much better description of uh, the first century. Do you agree with that description?
4: Yeah, and Jesus may have well been in that class and he certainly criticizes and critiques that class. So much of his religious criticism is against the scribes and the Pharisees who he says in the handout you had last week, he critiques the religious elite as holding the keys of knowledge or Mm -hmm. holding the keys to the kingdom of God and neither going in nor letting others go in either. Um, and he says that they they put heavy burdens on other people's backs. Um, so he's he's often critiquing um, that that religious elite in a way. It would be like you know people today criticizing like people in the Catholic Church criticizing the Pope and the you know the 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 priests or whatever the mm-hmm. archbishops. You're criticizing the elite. And so Jesus is doing that kind of. Um, call out.
0: Now let's take a little excursion
4: again because he says putting a burden on their backs, what's the phrase? Um, it's he, That's it. He, he talks about putting heavy burdens on people's backs that they cannot bear. Um, and and he, what is he referring to? So uh, uh, Details of it ritual would seem, practice? Yes, legal interpretation, ritual observation, um, How how you are to practice religion, how you're to be a good Jew. This and, is the way to do it. This is how you do it. Okay, and, so and, now and I'm this so this is a halakha question, and we talked about well, what was Jesus's halakha? What was his way? And we see in the Gospels, people come up to him and they say, Rabbi, um, what is the greatest of of uh, of the laws? And this would have been a common question. You want to ask a different rabbi. You're, you're asking, well, where are you rooted? What school are you in? What's your interpretation? What do you prioritize? in the way you teach the way. And so Jesus says, he prioritizes, um, that the, the greatest commandment is to to love the Lord, to love Adonai with all your heart and soul and mind, and, and? he says in the second commandment is like unto it, or is the same as it, love your neighbor as yourself. He says there, there are no greater commandments than these. On these two hang all the law and all the prophets. So when he's answering that, he's answering what would have been a common question, and he's locating himself in, in an interpretive vein within the tradition by prioritizing those commands. Someone else might have said the greatest commandments are about ritual purity, you know, um, etc. Right. So lest you think that he was the only one who did that, <laughs> right?
0: He is actually in the mainstream of rabbinic teachings of the first and second century. Rabbi Akiva who uh, lived between the years about, uh, people think from really the about 50 to about the year 135, was the greatest and most formative rabbi of his generation, which uh, does its interpreting after the destruction of the, of the temple. Okay, so Rabbi Akiva is like my man. <laughs> I love studying Rabbi Akiva. I teach him here a lot. When Rabbi Akiva was asked, what is the central principle of the Torah, he replied, Love your neighbor as yourself. Right? So no difference, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when Rabbi Akiva, in terms of putting a burden on the people, there's a saying about Rabbi Akiva. When Rabbi Akiva prayed by himself, it would take him hours to complete his worship. But when he was leading the community, he would finish quickly because people had to go to work.
2: <laughs>
0: OK, do you follow? Yeah. So if you are. Uh, in the elite, in the academy, and this is what you're doing, your spiritual practice might be elaborate and lengthy. But Rabbi Akiva was crystal clear that he couldn't put that burden on the regular people. So again, <laughs> we will hear, because of our conditioned uh, cultural thought that Jesus is trying to loosen up a tradition that has gotten too fossilized and stuck around the the picayune little details of how you do things you have to understand that the leading rabbi of the first century was teaching the same things so jesus was a reformer in in the vein Mm -hmm. of many mainstream rabbis it's so hard
4: to wrap our mind around that and, and Jesus is a precursor to Rabbi Akiva, mm-hmm. but he's also preceded by Rabbi Hillel, who's very much in, in the same kind of spirit. And when Rabbi Hillel was asked, teach me the Torah while standing on one foot,
0: he responded, what is, hatef- on one foot. What is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. The rest is commentary, go and study.
2: Yeah.
0: Okay, Hillel predates Jesus. Jesus. So you can see this stream that Jesus is a part of. Right. So we're not going to be able to answer the question that why did the Jews reject Jesus by saying they didn't like his teachings. Oh. They were hidebound right. and they didn't want to love each other. Right? <laughs> well, right? and, and but that's, that's, that's what we yeah. grew up with,
4: yeah right? And the answer is it's wrong. Some yeah. were, some weren't like. This is a diverse tradition. We looked at the, the radical diversity of first century Judaism. You had Essenes and Zealots and, you know, the precursors to rabbinical Judaism, like, oh, this is going on. And so Hillel or Jesus or Akiva, they're responding to another interpretive stream that maybe is hidebound and legalistic. But that isn't, that's, that's right. just one stream within a diverse tradition.
0: You have, in the first century that we know about, you have separatist groups. You have... Um, 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 uh, uh, zealots who are interested in uh, um, violent, political, violent revolution. political revolution. You have the, 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 the Sadducees who are a priestly caste who are interested in maintaining their power base as the head, heads of the political and religious establishment. And you have different streams among the rabbis uh, who, so all of this is going on in a living Uh, an alive community, a living society, where there's a massive diversity of views, especially under duress. The duress is Roman oppression. Mm -hmm. And the question is, what are we supposed to do? Mm -hmm. How do we navigate this? Uh, Now, there's been a number of hands. um, And uh, uh,
5: yes, Martha, you've been waiting. um, do I remember correctly that there were lots of gospels circulated at the time that these became canonized, and when and by whom?
1: Yeah, so... Okay, well,
0: not in the first century. Right. We were now just talking, just so we don't get confused. We were just talking about what was happening in the time of Jesus. Now let's move the question back to
4: the Gospels. Why are there these four Gospels in the New Testament? So how is this canon formed? So in in the early centuries, there are no narrative Gospels. the oldest surviving narrative gospel that we are aware of is the Gospel of Mark, which we're turning to now. Um, and then over the next few weeks we'll turn to Matthew and Luke, which are based on Mark, and then we'll turn to John. So it's the second half of the first century these texts are developing. And there are other texts that develop, other gospels that are circulating. And so the ones that end up in canon are of course you know, the winners <laughs> of, of uh, a process of sifting. and. Um, the texts that are most popular, that are most widely read, that are most widely circulated end up sort of rising to the surface and other ones um, begin falling away. And there's a very organic, we often think that there was like you know, some bishops in a back room smoking cigars decided, let's get rid of this gospel and (laughs) let's put this one in. It's actually a very organic process over several centuries as to which texts sort of rise to popularity. And then eventually, those are culled and a canon is formed from them. And the first list of the 27 books of the New Testament, um, we don't actually see that list until like in, in the 300s, like in the mid-4th century. And so Christianity for the first few hundred years is 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 fluid, and there are different options and different texts that people are using. Um, so that that process is only firmed up later, and we're often reading things through that later lens, which isn't really fair to this period because things weren't actually set um, in stone yet. So the gospel we're gonna turn to, and I know there's some other questions. Um, what we know, what the scholarly consensus is that it was written around the year 70. And what we know contextually is that 64, was the, the year 64 was the burning of Rome. Um, there were fires that swept through Rome and um, nero was blamed for it by some people and he needed a scapegoat and so he blamed the christians so he said it was this sect that set the fires in rome and this led to the first wave of of christian persecution um so this is the point where rome starts persecuting the sect and they say well you're not a recognized sect so judaism is a recognized religion by rome um, often oppressed by Rome, but given legal status. Right. And so at this point, the the status, the Jewish status of Jesus' followers is coming into question. And so this is the first time they start sort of coming out as a separate movement. And Rome can say, well, you don't have legal status, so we can persecute you. So they become a scapegoat under Nero. And then the Roman-Jewish war is kicked off. Um, Same two years later. Yeah, and, and that... that comes to cataclysmic conclusion in the year 70 when Rome raises Jerusalem and destroys the temple. And so that's the backdrop against which this gospel emerges. And so we see the first little threads of sort of Christian martyrdom complex, persecution complex coming into the text. Um, And that doesn't become (coughs) full-fledged until in the 80s when Christians are sort of finally expelled from the synagogues um, and John's gospel is where we start seeing that overt sort of anti-Semitic language. The Jews did this or that. I, I didn't know about that,
0: that under Nero, that's when the first uh, um, uh, um, blaming and oppression of the Christians happened. That's fascinating to me because that brings up a plausible, totally plausible explanation for why the Jewish community and the Christians grew apart. Yeah. If the Jews, the Jewish community, yeah. was an accepted religion under the Roman Empire, then they would want to distance themselves from these newly uh, um, vilified uh, sect. It's of threatening
4: Jew. your legal status as a recognized religion.
0: Uh, so again, and why I'm saying that is that when we discuss why Judaism and Christianity parted ways, when you study the teachings of Jesus, you hear that they're, they are also mainstream teachings of Judaism of the same period. So maybe it was political circumstance more than ideological or, or, or theological or spiritual that caused these traditions to uh, separate. And I just want to keep, <coughs> keep that in mind. As a, as a very plausible historical explanation for for where the one, rift one happened. One
4: strand of the explanation. It's, of course, more complex than any of one of these answers. It's all of these answers, but this is an important one to remember. Gail, you've had your hand up for a while.
5: Yeah, It's a question. Rabbi Jonathan, you keep mm-hmm. saying, and I've always understood, mm-hmm. that Hillel's teachings were mainstream Judaism. But I'm wondering, sitting here, if became mainstream yeah. after the fact as we wrote the Talmud. Okay. Um, so so
0: I've always steps. talked about how, I'm repeating what you said, oh, okay. I've but always talked about how Hillel and Akiva p- create and represent the mainstream of Jewish teaching. Uh, and Hillel lived in the se- decades before the first century, in the first century BCE, and then Akiva was born some maybe 60 years after Hillel's death.
5: But Is suddenly listening to you too. Maybe they weren't mainstream.
4: They were part of a diverse movement, yeah. And they become mainstream. Hold on, let her finish. I,
5: I know there were lots of different groups in Judaism, but Jesus was not criticizing the Essenes. He was criticizing, it sounds like, the standard Jewish teaching. And maybe the standard Jewish teachings were not so much Hillel, in his, which, which is in his time period. That's a good and question. Only now, in retrospect, that's become what we think of, because they Let, won. Let's Hillel's it, teachings yeah. won.
0: Yeah, his I'm going to repeat what she said. Maybe Hillel's teachings became mainstream because it was the rabbis who were the descendants of Hillel who survived yeah. and continued to, mm-hmm. uh, the other sect melted away. Well, I'm saying the other sects were mainstream. I'm saying you're saying that Hillel may not have been so mainstream.
5: I'm, I'm saying that specifically, the emphasis on halakha, yeah, may have been the primary approach in Jesus' time, with exceptions, but primary. And that's really I never thought. Of yes,
4: I understand. Yeah, I, I would I would say that that's that is my understanding of the history and my own perception is what you're describing. Okay. That that Hillel. Or Akiva represents what what wins out as rabbinic Judaism and becomes the mainstream teaching, especially in the period after the collapse of the temple. Right. Like this is a Judaism that makes sense without a temple because of what it prioritizes. Now the 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 priestly and Levitical uh, the Levites and the priests who are the elite surrounding the Jewish temple, that's what Jesus is often critiquing, and there does seem to be a. Uh, uh, a uh, Very high, you know, strong emphasis on um, religious purity, etc., ritual purity. And Jesus is often criticizing that. Um, so he's criticizing one component within first century Judaism. He's not com- criticizing all of it. And as Jonathan's saying, his critique is in line with other people's critiques. But yes, I don't think we can say yet that Hillel is the mainstream voice. He's one voice that becomes the mainstream voice. That that was my perspective. That's my what perception. you're saying, Gail,
0: and I think that's a, beautiful, a very valid point. Okay. Yeah. I, just, I have a
5: question about Nero and the Romans and how they took that.
0: A question about Nero and the Romans.
5: Right. Is Was this, this is just what I thought, so I'm just checking it out. So is it because Roman? Mm -hmm. were becoming Christians. They were doing that, and it was a nice, loving thing. (laughs) And the Roman religion wasn't really happy with having that. Um, And so I just wondered if that's one of the reasons. The question
0: was, did Nero turn on the Christians? Because they were starting to have a lot of
4: uh, adherence in Rome. Mm -hmm. So so I want to read to you um, Tacitus, who's a Roman historian, So he's writing towards the end of the first century, and he's writing about this Jesus movement. So he says, um, this is in response to Nero and the fire and the burning of Rome. Therefore, to stop the rumor that Nero had set the fires in Rome, um, the emperor falsely (coughs) charged with guilt and punished with the most fearful tortures, the persons commonly called Christians, who were generally hated for their enormities. Christus, which he seems to, he doesn't know who he's talking about, he just knows that there was some leader of this movement. So he says, Christus, the founder of that name, was put to death as a criminal by Pontius Pilate, um, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. But the pernicious superstition, that is the Jesus follower movement, the pernicious superstition repressed for a time... Broke out yet again, not only through Judea, where the mischief had originated, but through the city of Rome also, whither all things horrible and disgraceful flow from all quarters as to a common receptacle, and where they are encouraged. All lead to Rome. <laughs> accordingly, first those were arrested who confessed they were Christians. Next, on their information, a vast multitude were convicted, not so much on the charge of burning the city as of hating the human race, wow. Wow. and so Rome saw this movement as a threat wow. to Rome, um, and wow. they had tried to squash it, and then it takes off again, um, and so this is a Roman writing about Roman perceptions of the movement at the time. Wow. It's fascinating, fascinating to think that within a couple hundred years,
0: it will become the Holy Roman Empire. Right. Uh-huh, <laughs> the Christians, the Christians right. were a threat. Uh-huh, it's fascinating. There have been hands over here. Carol first, and then Andrew. I
5: just, I don't know. I think. Uh (laughs) Uh, What keeps striking me is that it's not even gender bias or differentiation. It's like complete lack of any kind of connection with females. I mean, how's about a, a, you know, a a rabbi Hilda? you know. Big question. I'm going to, Carol, I'm going to repeat
0: that so people hear it. Uh, So there are no women here. It's not even gender bias. It's like it isn't happening. Yeah. that's true and this is one of this the, is a patriarchal society
4: and this is one of the things that the Jesus movement is initially criticized for its inclusion of women yeah. so Rabbi Jesus includes women in his circle of followers we have women traveling on the road with him um, and, and often they're sometimes women of high repute within the society um, there are a number of women named in the gospel text and if a woman's name is recorded Like, they were really remembered, because often it just says, and the women. You know, there was James, John, Peter, you know, et cetera, and some women. It's like (laughs) these names get mentioned in the four Gospels. So we're told of Mary Magdalene, or Miriam of Magdala, is one of the um, women who follows him. Uh, Joanna, Susanna, um, I think Susanna is the steward, is the wife of Chusa, who's the steward of King Herod. So she was a a wealthy woman. What's
0: Susanna in Hebrew? Shoshana. Shoshana, what's Joanna in Hebrew? Yochana. These are Hebrew, These are women. Judean names.
4: Right. Um, uh, so, Mar- Martha, Salome, Martha, Salome, mm-hmm. um, a number of women who are named as being mm-hmm. integral to the early movement, and we have some gospel texts that have been recovered, like the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, which um, reports her her teaching authority in the early movement. Um, we see in one of the gospel stories, there's a a story of these two women who are sisters, Mary and Martha of Bethany, who, uh, did we talk about this last week? Um, In the story, Mary, Miriam, she sits at the rabbi's feet as he's teaching with men, a circle of men. And Martha, the other sister, she's busying herself in the kitchen to tend to the men. And she's embarrassed that her sister is sitting in front of the rabbi and, and she comes and says, Rabbi, tell her to come join me. And he says, no, uh, she's chosen the better part and it will not be taken from her because she's a woman. And so we see this is one of the boundaries Jesus was crossing in first century Judaism was the inclusion of women in the close circle of students and in the teaching mm-hmm. and in the travels on the road. Um, right, right. And that also becomes suppressed in Christianity as it becomes an increasingly patriarchal tradition. So Christianity merges with empire and pulls back to the norms of patriarchy. And then women are shut out of leadership once again. What's
0: crucial here, from the perspective of a Jewish teacher, is that the Jews, remember, the Jews get blamed for everything, (laughs) right? That's the nature of anti-Semitism. So in contemporary feminist scholarship, the Bible gets blamed for patriarchy, for example. Um, But the Jews were part of a world that was utterly patriarchal. It's not like the Jews were this patriarchal clan in a world that... posing <laughs>
4: patriarchy on everyone. The
0: Jews are a, a small minority in a province called Judea in the far-flung Roman Empire, which is a patriarchal society, which is why even Jesus' radical teachings and of everybody's made in God's image, right? As it says in the Bible. Uh, as Christianity takes on institutional structure and gains in uh, a kind of solidity, it merges once again with the patriarchal establishment. So I just have to say over and over that I've heard it too many times, I've read too many books, where the Jewish scriptures get blamed, say, for the way women are treated in the world. And that's not true. Okay, Uh, If there was a golden age somewhere in prehistory where women had all the power, or were women, which were matriarchal and women-led societies, which is, you know, that would be great. I see no evidence of it in my historical reading. I think we're in a brand new ballgame here, which I'm very excited about.
5: Angela? I, I have a question. Um, all, all rabbis, all of them had followers. What was it about um, followers of the way that... Prompted, the way of Jesus? Yes, that prompted Nero um, to say... You, they're Jewish, are
0: illegal. Of all the different Jewish sects, what prompted Nero to
4: single out the Christians? Do we know the answer to that question? Part of the answer to that question has to do initially with when the fires swept through Rome, there was a large um, group of Christians that lived in a section that didn't burn. And so it was said, oh, they must have started the fires. So many fires at the time. Right. And so they, I mean... All the historical evidence says they became, for Nero, a scapegoat. He needed to blame someone, so they were an easy group to blame. And they had an unguarded legal status, and so that was... They
5: weren't Jewish then?
4: Well, they are Jewish. Yeah, they are Jewish, but in this period, this is the 60s, so Paul has also been doing his, his work, and they've been incorporating increasingly Gentiles into the movement, who are not being circumcised <laughs> and converting to Judaism. And so suddenly the movement is becoming murky, and therefore its status as Judaism is becoming murky, which allows Rome to say, you're no longer recognized. Yeah. That's a that clear very start. clear answer. Okay. Thank
0: you. Arnie? The,
3: the, Roman <clears throat> the Roman objections to the Christian is because the Christians are seen by the Romans as a subversive element. Yeah. That, that they're talking about the king of the Jews, mm-hmm. the, the kingdom of God. So Rome sees this as a threat, a seditious element mm-hmm. to the Roman establishment. They don't have this feeling towards the Jews, because Rome virtually appoints the high priest. Right. Wrote the high priesthood operates within the framework of, of, uh, of Roman rule. Right. We have same thing today, the Chinese mm-hmm. and, and the Muslim why why are the Chinese so obsessed with this Muslim minority? Yeah. They see them as, as a, a subversive element that uh, no, the China, they're not the government of Beijing is not supreme uh, because these Muslims have allegiance to uh, you know another authority. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank so, you,
4: Arnie. So he's saying that that why was Rome nervous about this Jesus movement because it was seen as a subversive element and a threat. Um, which is right, and it's not that Judaism also wasn't seen as a threat, but it was a known threat, and there had been a lot of work done to control right. that threat. So by the time of Jesus, Rome is appointing the high priest at the temple, mm-hmm. like the temple, and this is why the Essenes say we got to get out of town because the temple is polluted, right. and this is why Jesus is criticizing the religious, religious elite of the temple because it's seen as corrupted, and they're Rome's point. pocket, yeah, right, in Rome's pocket, and so so the Christian movement. It's not only subversive, it's an unknown entity. At least you can control, to some extent, Judaism. And this, it's, it's yeah, it's a, it's a threat, as, as Arnie said.
0: Yeah. Um, Joya had her hand up, and then Gary.
5: Very small point, but it's historical. The reason that the, this movement of following Jesus uh, met on Sunday is because they were all following Shabbat, they were all following the Sabbath, and all went to synagogue on Saturday and followed the, the Jewish rule.
0: So they had left to them the next day. This Sunday. is a whole other whole uh, <laughs> other subject, which is I'm going to repeat. I'm going to repeat why uh, why why is Christian holy day Sunday? Because they were already practicing Shabbat on Saturday, and then they had their own fellowship the following day. That's an interesting explanation. Well, and it's and it's
4: because I don't know the, because symbolically it was understood. That, that Jesus um, was, was raised to God on the eighth day. And so Sunday is the day of resurrection in the Christian tradition. So that becomes the holy day that's observed. Oh, fascinating. Um, and, and, and Christians, you do see in these early centuries, they refer to it sometimes as the eighth day. So it's this new day within the cycle of time. Okay. Um, now, so the, anyway, eight, the yeah. eighth
0: day is a Jewish trope,
2: mm.
0: right? Over and over. In the Bible, uh, the, the term, and on the eighth day is used, uh, which represents always a new cycle, uh-huh. mm-hmm. right? Because the earth is created in seven days. The eighth day represents not just for the Christians, they are Jews. Mm-hmm. It's a, it already exists as a metaphor in the tradition. Gary. Gary.
6: Yeah, I, I want to try to thread a needle here and ask a question. I want to make. It What's clear. that about a camel
4: and the needle? <laughs> and yeah, yeah, yeah. It's harder. Jesus says it's harder for a, a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than that for a wealthy man to get to into answer, the, answer, the answer, kingdom of I suppose, God. I suppose,
6: right. I, I'm following our rabbi. I, I just want to make clear that I'm not taking a position. I'm asking a question. But with regard to the history of the patriarchal society and modern religious thought, okay, it, we take for granted that we are a more liberated society because women have a more equal part in in all aspects of of our secular and religious life. Is there any element within contemporary religious thinking who uh, takes both the position that the rights of women have to be respected fully and their inclusion in all aspects of secular and religious life have to be uh, promulgated (coughs) and simultaneously questions or wonders whether there was something inherent in the patriarchal element of society that gave birth to the richness of Jesus and and Jewish thought.
0: I would say that lots of men are trying to thread that needle. (laughs) (laughs) And I I know I'm being facetious. But I'm not. uh, Right. So um, I can't answer that question. (laughs) I can only state that I have embraced a, a very contemporary, utterly experimental concept that every human being should have full access to every hall of power and to the full expression of their potential, whatever it might be. That is my contemporary premise, and I say it out loud, and I'm conditioning all of my um, study of ancient traditions on and filtering through this premise. So um, I have no idea whether I'm right or wrong. I have no idea whether it will historically be a blip or last, I have no idea. So I can't I can't answer that question. I can only be honest about my perspective. Fair
4: sure, enough. S- so, before we I know there are other hands and yeah. we'll we'll check in with them, but we want to begin actually turning to the text. Why not? I so, said we would get through maybe one verse. So, so let's we might not it. even get through one verse. So, here if you and oh, yeah, great. How great. many do you have next? Let's on get one of these two. I think there's 60 of these, so okay. if we right run out, share with the neighbor. Share, Over the corner. around. go, to Yeah, All right.
5: Now I can get away.
1: All right. that down. It's
5: good stuff.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Great, I gave a couple out here. There is some, ex- wherever there, yeah, there are some Great. extras, yeah, I'll just relax them and redistribute them.
0: Great, who needs to get an eyeball? Front row.
4: Okay, so up here. Back
0: there, back there.
4: Oh, there's someone's pager or something on the floor. There's some extras there.
0: Oh, good, good. Anyone else? Oh, we got extras. Anybody else want one? You can be greedy. Yeah.
2: Anybody else? No. Yeah. Right. yeah.
4: Okay. Yeah, you have your. Right. Anybody else? Great. Right. So what you have in hand is just a photocopy of the first chapter of the first narrative gospel, the Gospel of of Mark. Um, translation? This is a translation by Willis Barnstone, and I chose this translation for photocopying because he specifically is restoring the Jewish. Place names and person names that would have actually been used. So Mary was Miriam, and Jesus was Yeshua, and uh, etc. Um, and Jerusalem was Yerushalayim, and so he's trying to give us back the feeling that that should be there in the text. But often, because it's passed through Greek translation into English translation, it sounds like we're reading about people who weren't Jews, and. They were all Jews, so this text is just trying to give that back to us. Um, fascinating. Yeah. Is that this volume here? That's this volume here,
0: yeah. It's called The Restored New Testament. That's fascinating.
4: Yeah, by Willis Barnstone, and and we'll hand out a, a slip here at the end of the class that has Whoa. some translation recommendations. Mark and Chagall. the famous
0: Chagall um, of Jesus on the cross uh, is the cover. That's fascinating. Talk about...
4: <laughs> wow. Yeah. And that's that's it's Mark Chagall's painting um, the White Crucifixion. And if you haven't seen it, just after after class come and take a peek at it. It's 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 an amazing uh, piece of work. So, Jonathan, I'm going to turn it over you over to you to begin introducing the text. Okay, so I was
0: having we talked about some of this last week, but I can't hurt to hear it again. Uh, the beginning of the Gospel of Yeshua, the Mashiach, Son of God. Okay, or in another version here, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And in the footnotes, it says uh, good news is also gospel in the version I'm looking at, and uh, other ancient uh, texts lack the Son of God there. So, but we're going to use this one because this, <coughs> this is the accepted.
4: Yeah, this is the so the gospels again they were uh, uh, scribes were um, copying and recopying these texts and so when we look at gospel texts they're variants you know every every scribal um, copying of a gospel isn't going to match every other copy and so there uh, are are little um, slips and changes in the transmission of the text So one of them, Jonathan, is pointing out, some of the manuscripts lack the phrase Son of God in that opening sentence, Um, but the majority Mm -hmm. manuscript tradition has it. The same
0: is true of the Hebrew scriptures. When you read up uh, a a critical edition of the the Hebrew Bible, there'll be many footnotes saying, well, this edition from the 12th century says this. This one from the 2nd century says with little textual changes. And then, but eventually there's one text that becomes mm, the, the mainstream, the dominant one.
4: And, and just a reminder as we go into this, this text um, didn't, the original text, the earliest manuscripts, there's no title. It didn't say the gospel according to Mark. Um, that's a title that gets appended to it a good hundred years later. Um, I think the first time um, it's Bishop um, Papias and the like around the year 130, He says that he heard tradition that said that Mark, who was a student of Peter, who was a student of Jesus, that he recorded Peter's reminiscences, and that was where this gospel came from. But that's a a story that comes into the tradition well into the second century. The truth is, we don't know who created this text, Um, just that there's an association with a student of, of Peter remembered as Mark. So the name gets attached to it in the second century. In the first century, it just begins the beginning of the good news of Yeshua the Mashiach. Uh, that's great. Yeah. Good. Good. So this was written
0: in Greek, right. correct? Which was the language that most Jewish people who lived around the Roman Empire spoke, along with everybody else. <coughs> so I'm going to repeat this. When Greek became the lingua franca of the world during the time of Alexander the Great, there was a movement to translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek. This is around the year 200 BC, right? Because they want people to understand it. So the first translation of the Bible, the, what, what some call the Old Testament, we'll call it the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, is into Greek, couple couple hundred, three hundred years before this, and it's called the Septuagint because, as I mentioned in another class, according to, according to the stories, it took 70 scholars worked on it, Septuagint, and uh, to show that it was authoritative in the legend uh, about its origin, all 70 worked in separate cubicles and they all came up with the exact same
2: <laughs> version, right? <laughs> Uh,
0: well, you know that. I mean, it's a good origin story, isn't it? Because you want to give it. You want to give it like this yeah. is the. But it's a translation. Let's also remember and not make assumptions. Every translation is an interpretation, by definition. Right, because there is no one-to-one correlation between different languages. So you're always trying to figure out context. How much the more so, if you're dealing with a text that's already ancient. And maybe your cultural and political conditions don't match the agrarian uh, society in which this was originally because you're now in a more cosmopolitan society. Remember all the polices of Greece. So translation is an art. So if you want your translation to be authoritative, you have to figure out a way to give it authority. So that's the story of the authority of the Septuagint. So... (coughs) Um, uh, so that's the text
4: that, um, that th- these writers know best, right. maybe better than the Hebrew. Right, so Jews are reading the Bible in Greek at this point, so they're writing, these Jewish Christians are writing their texts in Greek. But Jews of that time
0: and us today who can read, who understand both Greek and Hebrew can compare them. And they don't always match. (laughs) They don't always match because they do not always match. uh, uh, Not necessarily for nefarious reasons, uh, but for the vagaries of trying to get a concept across from a different language and different era into a contemporary idiom. And
2: culture.
0: And
4: culture, that's what I'm saying. And so we have to remember whenever we read words of Jesus, which we'll get to here in a little while, um, that, that... Anything that we have that says, Jesus said, is always an approximation. Because Jesus spoke in Aramaic, probably. Um, it was passed down through a few generations of oral tradition. And then it was translated into Greek. And now we're reading it in English. And so it's always, it, it, you have to keep in mind, when it says, Jesus said, we should hear, Jesus said something like this. Jesus said something close to this. Um, we're always in the realm of approximation. And so this also probably bears true for
0: seeking Christians as it does for seeking Jews. If you aren't um, um, literate in Hebrew, at some point, if you're passionate about Jewish study, you realize, I have to learn the original. Right? Uh, Because I don't know what I'm missing. And I'm sure the same is true about Christians who want to read it in Greek and then who want to take it another step and learn Hebrew. Uh, You want even though we're, so language is is, uh, always provisional that way. So the word gospel in Greek, evangelion, mm -hmm, means good news. Good news is mevasertov in Hebrew. And this beginning line about good news is citing specifically Isaiah chapter 52. Okay, so I'm I'm just going to read it to you. I read it to you a couple of weeks ago or last week. Uh, and then I want to say something about it. Um, how welcome on the mountain are the footsteps of the herald announcing good news of peace and of salvation. Okay, Isaiah 52.7. When was this Isaiah writing? He's writing sometime in the 5th century BCE. Now, this is what you need to know about Isaiah. Isaiah in the Bible, is 66 chapters under the name of Isaiah. We know that the first 39 chapters, we can date them. Because Isaiah, whoever that that Isaiah, Ben Amot, is talking about rulers and political figures that we know about historically from the 7th century BCE. Right From the 600s BCE. Uh, However, we... Nobody has the minutes of how this happened. <laughs> At some point, a second prophet who gets rolled into the scroll of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66, he gets called by modern scholarship second Isaiah, but we know isaiah we, So we just call him Isaiah because that's what happened. But we know when he's writing because he mentions Cyrus, the emperor of Persia. That's in the year 400 and something. So 200 years at least after the original Isaiah, probably 300, because we could date Isaiah the first day actually to the eighth century BCE. So um, So this is a figure who, uh, these, who these words have been, have been written somewhere in the fifth century BCE and they are now Holy Scripture. They've been holy scripture. The words of Isaiah have been canonized and part of the Hebrew Bible for hundreds of years, as the words of the prophets, who said, how welcome on the mountain are the footsteps of the herald, announcing peace, the good news of peace and of salvation, telling Zion, Melach Elohiah, your God is king. Hark, your watchmen raise their voices, and as one they shout for joy for every... Um, I shall behold the Lord's return to Zion. Okay. Zion is Jerusalem. Mount Zion is a mountain in Jerusalem. They are synonymous, right? And uh, King David is purportedly his tomb. We don't. It's not. An, it's almost definitely not his historic burial place. But for because he's so associated with Zion and Jerusalem, there's a the, the, the King David's tomb is on Mount Zion. Uh, in the old city, just outside the walls of the old city of Jerusalem. I'm telling you all this um, uh, because uh, Isaiah, what we know historically, this second Isaiah, is writing in Babylonia, which is now the Persian Empire. He is speaking to the exiles of the Jewish community who had been exiled there over a 100 years before, saying, Good news. We can, we know his, we can be, make a very solid historical uh, guess about what's going on here. We have enough information in the text. There's an exiled community of Jews in Babylonia which has been overturned and is now the Persian Empire. Cyrus is now, we know historically Cyrus is the emperor of Persia who gives permission to the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild it the Jews of Babylonia.
5: So that's the good news? That's the good news. (laughs) In its moment, the
0: good news is we get to return to Jerusalem. All of the prophetic good news in all the prophets is always about that we Jews are going to be restored to our homeland and our temple and our sovereignty. For the Jews in the books of the prophets it's clear that, that redemption, our salvation, our, is collective.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Right? That is, remains to this day the Jewish understanding. It will be interpreted differently in the gospel, where the kingdom of God, the restoration of Zion, the good news, will be interpreted in a different way. Not as our collective national restoration, but as a more personal. Salvation is that fair to say? Well, not exactly. No, I don't have the right words. What we'll exactly.
4: see again the kingdom of God that Jesus proclaims how it's understood varies across the gospels because the people who are interpreting Jesus have different understandings about what he meant by that phrase. And so oh, right, sometimes we'll see apocalypticism creeping into the gospel texts and really seeing the kingdom as something that's going to you know come apocalyptically. We explored this last week. We'll see some texts talk about it as something that's within and among us now. And so Christians are dealing with, well, what did Jesus mean by the kingdom of God? Um, and so the question continues, what is it and how will it come? Um, but Jonathan, I wonder No, if, but that's very fair. That's what I wanted to say, what he said. <laughs> Can you read for us from, from Isaiah, um, verse four, f- chapter 45, verse 1? We mentioned this last week, but it's mm-hmm. just good to hear it. Chapter forty-five, verse one. Verse one. This
0: is also Second Isaiah. And this
4: is talking about Cyrus, the Persian. We just talked about. Oh yeah, well I was going to get because this relates to good news is being proclaimed, and so we want to see how Isaiah (laughs) frames good news, and then see what they're doing when they quote Isaiah here. Listen, this. Thus said the Lord, meaning the God of all
0: creation, our God, to Cyrus, his anointed one. That's Mashiach. In Hebrew, Mishichol slash Choresh. Okay, we talked last time about uh, a Mashiach is someone (laughs) anointed by God. Why is Cyrus anointed by God? The Gentile
4: Persian king is anointed by God, and this is good
0: news. Because he (laughs) is the um, uh, instrument of of the Jews' return to Zion.
4: But this is important to see how the word Messiah could be used, how God's anointed one could be used across the textual tradition.
0: Even for a foreign king.
4: Right. So when it's applied to Jesus, we're hearing it well after the fact with Christian theological lenses about what that means, that it means this one very specific thing. But we can see within the, the like wide interpretive landscape of the tradition, that phrase was used right here. The good news that Isaiah is talking about is... Well, that Cyrus is the Messiah, is the anointed one. Now, this is another crucial point, which is that
0: we think of the word prophecy today as predicting the future, right? But the prophets in their context, in ancient Israel, were not predicting the future. They were mouthpieces, oracles for the divine voice. They were spokespeople for God. The Hebrew word navi, which gets translated as prophet, Means someone who is a spokesperson for the divine, and thus says the Lord, yeah. right? And they were all the prophets were almost always speaking about contemporary social political issues. Only after, in the many centuries after their texts are codified, do people of future generations start to read these texts as predicted. As predictive. In their historical context, they are not
4: predictive except for next week or next year. And they'll often say, like, you know, if you continue down this path, this horrible thing is going to happen to you. But it's not understood that that's locked in place. It's saying, like, if you keep on this path and, and, and then if you change the path, something else can unfold. So it's not telling us a set locked in future, which is how we read it now as the Hebrew prophets are Nostradamus, you know. and they're. <laughs> but that is so far so far from their intent.
0: In Judaism, in ancient Judaism, the prophets are remi- con- their purpose, and they lay their lives on the line constantly to do this, is to remind people of their covenantal responsibilities to God, to feed the hungry, to uh, uh, bring the, 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 the prisoner out of the dungeon, to um, all that whole list of classic, Biblical, ethical imperatives. Social justice. Social justice, right? That uh, I hate your festivals and your new moons. Here's what I want. That you love mercy and do justice and walk humbly with your God. That's the prophet. So the prophet is not, in its biblical context, predicting the future. The prophet is constantly there to be a a gadfly, a reminder uh, of what the covenant that the people are constantly failing to uphold and of what the consequences are going to be, unless they repent and return to the to the to the, cov- to the true agreement of the covenant, that, that 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 is there to do. Jesus is a clear inheritor of the prophetic tradition. Um, he is. Remo- what we'll we'll read more of those <laughs> quotes when we get yep. to it. Um, now, in the Jewish tradition. When the canon is closed somewhere around the 2nd century BC, 3rd century, um, it is determined that prophecy has ceased in Israel. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's a whole other subject because in order to deal with the fact that they now have a sacred text in which and to which we are supposed to look for our guidance, um, the truth is inspiration never stops and so when someone has an inspiration until the last
4: page of the new testament was written then it stopped <laughs> right.
0: or until the last page of the quran was written and then it stopped right so in, in judaism instead when someone has an inspiration in the rabbinic period they can't say they're prophetically inspired so they say uh, a bat kol a divine voice spoke to them mm-hmm. and they just they spin it you know um, uh, but, but but anyway so it's very important to understand that when christians m- No, 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 no. I generalized awfully there. Um, When Christians... When when the Christians who want to convert me. That's what I meant. Then go chapter and verse.
4: By which you mean most Christians from most of history. Yeah. (laughs) Let's be honest. Uh, When when the
0: Christians who want to convert me, then go by chapter and verse through Isaiah to show me how this verse in Isaiah and this verse in Isaiah proves that it was talking about Jesus. Uh, Anyone ever had that conversation? Sure. Okay. Um, For a Jew, especially a
4: Jew with an historical background like mine, it's ridiculous. Because that's not what Isaiah was doing. That's not what any of the prophets were doing. To think that when the prophets spoke, they were speaking something that was meant to be meaningful to the person who was hearing it right then. And to think that they were hiding little clues and hints about someone who's going to come hundreds of years later like, then what they're saying is pointless for the person who's listening to it, because it's not going to make sense for hundreds of years later. The prophets weren't doing that. The prophets weren't talking about Jesus. I, I say this, like, with fervor, but it's, that's, that's a misunderstanding, as Jonathan is, is saying, of what Hebrew prophecy is about and what it's doing. What the Jesus followers do, then they do what, what Jewish people what always have Jews done. all Jews do. You... you Make meaning of your experience in light of the sacred text of your tradition. And so that becomes the interpretive lens or filter through which you read the experience. So Jesus has happened. This this reformer, this prophet, this what all the things he was, this has happened. And now how what does it mean in the context of my Judaism? So they went back to the scriptures and then read them in light of their Jesus experience. So so it's not that the prophets were pointing to Jesus all along it's that the Christians find Jesus in their scriptures because that's what we do to make meaning. It's called a proof text the Jewish way which these Christians
0: are also following is that whenever you want to say something you look for a verse or a section of the Torah that can serve as a template and a proof text for what you're about to say as the good book says Right? And then it's whatever. You take the verse, but you give it whatever meaning you want it to give it, uh, as Tevye says and Fiddle around the Roof. Right? <laughs> uh, my point here is that as a modern reader, I actually enjoy, I've come to enjoy that exercise. Right? Mm-hmm. To find a verse and then to amplify it in the direction I want to go once the hebrew bible is a fixed text and considered to be divinely inspired then if you want to share your insight make a new idea move things in a certain direction the way the game is played is you have to find a verse or a section from the torah that will support your position anchor it in that which is acceptably sacred that is the game and drives some people crazy. Uh, but once you, but if you're, again, as a very modern uh, student of Torah, if I can enjoy it as a holy game,
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, then it's fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, uh, but um, when a Christian who's trying to convert me is playing the game, yeah. they are not playing it my way. <laughs> because their
4: way is that there is only one correct interpretation. So when we read this verse here, where Mark is beginning this Gospel, quoting Isaiah, the goal isn't here for, you know, all the Jewish people in the room for, you know, to see, see, Isaiah, he said it, that was about Jesus, it's to go know that that whoever wrote the Gospel of Mark made sense of Jesus in light of this verse. Jesus came into focus for him in light of this verse, it it was a meaning-making exercise within the tradition. But it's not then locking us into, this is the only meaning this verse can ever have, and it's the meaning it has to have for everyone. It's a creative way of using
0: culture and language and your sacred texts. So now I want to add to that. In the Jewish tradition, this chapter, Isaiah 52, and the one before it, are a, are a very special prophetic passion, passage in the Jewish tradition. Uh, okay, I need to give you some background. Um, after the temple is destroyed in the year 70, which is about the time Mark is, is also being composed, um, uh, the Jews, it's a catastrophe, remember. It's an c- utter calamity. Uh, the temple, the center of the universe, has been destroyed. Uh, and the Jewish tradition declares the day that it's destroyed to be a fast day. Um, That day is called the 9th of Av, Tisha B'Av. We still mark it to this day. The 9th of Av, the day on which the temple was destroyed. And it's a fast day. It comes in the middle of the summer. There are seven weeks from the 9th of Av until the Jewish New Year, until Rosh Hashanah. And the rabbis assigned a long time ago a special reading from the prophets for each Sabbath at, of the seven Sabbaths after um, the ninth of Av. And they are called the Haftarot <laughs> Nachemtah. They are the the script, the the, the, um, the uh, uh, prophetic passages of comfort.
2: <laughs>
0: comfort and consolation. So this is one of the key passages that the Jewish community embraces as a, as a passage of consolation in the wake of the destruction. So I was reading in the notes of, of this annotated New Testament that one of the ways that in the Greek world, and therefore in the Jewish world, that uh, texts were known was there were collections of testimonia on certain subjects. Mm. So probably the Jews of the first century knew a variety of sections of Isaiah mm-hmm. that offered comfort mm-hmm. and consolation and that there was going to be good news and that God would return. So this wasn't, a, what my point is, this was not a random verse right. that someone was leafing through the Torah <laughs> saying, what will, up, what will back up? Mm-hmm. This was one of the greatest hits. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Every, everybody knew it. Mm-hmm. And so it, was lo- it would be logical to say, here's the good news the Mibhaseyotot. Mm-hmm. Yes. We know. We, 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 this astonishing guy, Yeshua, ha, that's the good news. And they would be quoting something that all Jews knew at that time. That's, uh, I'm, again, I'm, I want to create context yeah. here. Is
4: that and helpful? That's very helpful. And it's also, we, we just have to remember each of these phrases that he opens with, Messiah, Mashiach, Son of God. We have to hear these in the context of first century Judaism. What did they mean when Mark was writing? Not what do they mean for Christians 100 or 200 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, and We'll just hold that in, in the background, because we're going to come around to these phrases again as we move Oh, the So text. we should hold off on Mashiach and Son of God for well, a while? Well, we just did Mashiach. We, we just okay, did that. Okay. And then the Son of God, it's going to come back around in the baptismal narrative. So maybe we can address it then. So we okay, keep
0: cause, moving. Because uh, really, we have to keep moving? We don't have to.
4: <laughs> um,
0: OK, I have a lot to say about Mashiach and Son of God. But uh, let's stick with uh, Isaiah. and. We'll do, flag that. Huh? Do
4: you want to go there now, Jonathan?
5: <laughs>
2: well it's
5: not uh,
0: you do? much time for us. Uh,
2: <laughs> we uh, go. you got
0: fifteen minutes. No, no, well, we'll yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know.
2: Um,
0: I was having I was having such a I was having such a good time doing all this preparation. I'm like my mind is exploding. So
4: Well that's the first we said one sentence and that's the first verse, so let's keep going with
0: it. Okay, so I'm gonna repeat, we talked about it last week. Mashiach means anointed meaning uh, someone, someone who's anointed has been given divine authority to either be king or high priest. The most famous anointed person in Jewish tradition is King David. Right. So I want to remind you all who that was. When, in, in the book of Samuel, uh, the Jews are not a united kingdom. They are a confederation of tribes. We are in the year 1000 BCE. Uh, The Jews, the tribes come together and demand of the leading prophet Samuel that they have a king. He chooses a man named Saul who is six foot four and like, (laughs) you know, he looks like a king. And, uh, Saul turns out to be, in in this incredible storytelling in the book of Samuel, a very troubled soul, prone to fits of melancholy and rage and depression. Okay, And ultimately, Saul cannot unite the tribes. And so according to the legend, Samuel has to find somebody else to replace Saul. And when we first meet David, and uh, I'm going to read this to you. Uh, when we first meet David, um, it says, and this will just ring <coughs> bells. Uh, God says to Prophet Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your everyone knows this story back then. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem, for I have decided on one of his sons to be king. Uh, Samuel replied how can I go if Saul hears of it he will kill me (laughs) if you know your New Testament there's echoes of this all over the place (laughs) the Lord answered take a heifer with you and say I have come to sacrifice to the Lord invite Jesse to the sacrificial feast and then I will make known to you what you shall do you shall anoint for me the one I point out to you what's the word anoint? mashach okay Mashiach, mashach that's God talking Samuel did what the Lord commanded when he came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city went out in alarm to meet him and said, "Uh, Do you come in peace? Yes, he replied. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and join me in a sacrificial feast. And he also instructed Jesse and his sons to purify themselves and invited them to the sacrificial feast. When they arrived and he saw Eliab, the oldest son, he thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, pay no attention to his appearance or his stature, for I have rejected him. For not as man sees does God see. Man sees only what is external, but the Lord sees into the heart. And then Jesse called Avinadab, the next son. No, not him. Next son, not him, not him. Thus Jesse presented seven of his sons before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked Jesse, Are these all the boys you have? I love this story. <laughs> he replied, There is still the youngest. He is tending the flock. Shepherd, bring him. And Samuel said, Send someone to bring him, for he will, we will not sit down to eat until he gets here. So they sent him and brought him, and he was ruddy-cheeked and bright-eyed, and the Lord said, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Samuel took the horn of the oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers, and the spirit of the Lord was with David from that day on. Okay, that is the story when David first appeared. So those of you who know your, your, your Gospels will hear all kinds of echoes of this story, and the reason I'm reading it to you right now um, is uh, because I want you to, so it becomes crucial, interestingly not in Mark, so we'll get to this later, but in, the, in other Gospels, that Jesus be identified as a descendant of David. Now historically, what, why would that be?
4: Then he has credentials to restore the Davidic line, the throne, to sit on the throne of David. King David's monarchy lasts for 400 years.
0: From the year about 1,000 or so until the year 586 BCE, when the Babylonians destroy Jerusalem, the Davidic monarch will never again sit on the throne. In fact, the Davidic monarchy line is lost. Hundreds of years later now, in the first century, David, the kingdom, the, the monarchy, the, the house of David, is a... It's the golden age. The golden age, and, and a myth, mythical and spiritual uh, um, understanding who, of, of restoring our greatness. Um, We're going to go back. Yes. And We're so now go. you hear that David, in that beautiful passage, God doesn't look at the outside. God looks at the heart. It's a beautiful story, isn't it? And uh, he's the littlest. He's the runt. Because the, then the David and Goliath story happened shortly thereafter. Uh, and um, he's, his name, David, means in Hebrew, beloved. He is God. I need the Dodi. The David. Daoud. David means beloved. Uh, so my beloved One, the anointed one, you know, the king. It's all there for you to hear when you read the Gospels that talk about Jesus that way. Yes?
5: Right, and even when Jesus is baptized, the voice comes down and says, this is my beloved son. Yes, that comes in a few verses. Uh,
0: So let's look at that. Um, So that's Mashiach, the anointed one, son of God. So this was fascinating to me. Matthew knew this stuff already. I didn't know this. Uh, um, Psalm 2, which is a kingship psalm, an anointing psalm. Uh, Remember, the psalms are all attributed to King David. When you study the psalms, it becomes crystal clear that some of them are from many really. centuries after King David. Names are mentioned, you know, it's like... <laughs> uh, but it doesn't matter. The tradition, again, as, ascribes to David, the poet king, the warrior poet, you know, this astonishing figure, uh, the sweet singer of Israel, as he's known.
4: Warrior poet musician. He's all of he's he, all. Yeah. about yeah. And David's an amazing
0: character who becomes the, the King Arthur of Jewish legend, yeah. right? <laughs> really, really. Uh, just a, this beautiful, beautiful figure. And if you ever want to read the Book of Samuel as a great novel, which has this incredible character study. So Psalm two, verse seven. Um, <laughs> you're going to go all the way to the beginning, or you're going to? No, uh, no. It's it's about <laughs> it's about God and uh, God speaking in the psalm, talking about the the one who. I have installed, in verse 6, God says, I have installed my king on Zion, my
4: holy mountain, says God. My holy Holy mountain. 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 And and if we back up to verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against God's anointed. So, David, against God's anointed, against God's Mashiach. So we're in the context. Well, I guess we should read the whole thing. Yeah. Why do nations assemble and people plot vain things?
0: Kings of the earth take their stand, and regents intrigue together against the Lord and against His anointed, meaning King David. They say, "Let us break the cords of their yoke, shake off their rope from us." David was a successful, conquering king. He who is enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord (laughs) mocks at them. And then he speaks to them in anger, terrifying them in his rage. God says, but I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Let me tell of the decree. The Lord said to me,
4: you are my son. I have fathered you this day. And here in the New Revised Standard, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Um, Okay, so... It was customary
0: not only in Israel, but all over the ancient Near East, for the king to be, as they were uh, made, in, as they ascended to the monarchy, adopted,
4: as it were, by God. God's Son the on The anointed Earth. one is the Son of God. David yeah. was begotten as the Son of God when he was anointed. Only in later Christianity, sometime later,
0: Matthew might be able to illuminate us at the time of the year 70, it's not clear at all that when Mark says, the anointed
4: one, son of God, that Mark means something supernatural. Yeah, this does. And remember, how does Mark's gospel begin? Not with the birth story. The birth stories haven't entered the tradition yet at this point. We're dealing with an adult grown Jesus. So this is not a biological metaphor for Mark. This is a, a metaphor of anointing. That he is anointed and therefore is the Son of God, as David was anointed and therefore was the Son of God. So it's really amazing when you yeah. put it in context. Uh, Blaze.
5: So when you were reading um, about the anointing and when he anointed David, when God anointed David, the Spirit of God came, came upon him, him and came stayed with him. him. Ah. So it was the anointing. And then it was this, I mean, he obviously recognized something in David that David could take this, but the spirit came with the anointing. It wasn't there first, and that made him the son, essentially.
0: Uh, Right, so since we just have a couple of minutes left, turn the page (coughs) and look at verse 9 where it says, Yeshua immersed. And we'll close with this. If you look on the next page, if they're back in front, and you find a heading that says Yeshua Immersed, and then there's a little nine okay. next to the, the next line, okay? And it happened in those days that Yeshua came from Nazareth. I have to mention that my brother and his family live five minutes from Nazareth in the Galilee today, and it's a good place to... Place to go shopping.
2: <laughs>
0: but it's a bad place to drive. The streets there were not designed for cars. I know. It happened in those days that Yeshua came from Nazareth in the Galilee, the Galilee, and was immersed in the Yardane, the Jordan, by Yochanan, John the Baptist. And as soon as he came out of the water, meaning Jesus, he saw the heavens torn open. And the spirit, like a dove, descending on him. And there came a voice out of the skies, You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. So, have well this. Pleased.
4: with you, I am well pleased. Um, and again, Psalm 2, I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Um, so again, Jesus is hearing the voice that David heard. Right, right. So um, what do you wanna say about that? Well, one thing to note, and, and this will become evident as the accounts develop. So we've talked about the way as the stories get passed down and the way they shift. So in Mark, the earliest account, this is described as an, in, an experience internal to the consciousness of Jesus, right? As soon as he came out of the water, he saw the heavens torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. So this is something happening in Jesus' visionary journey. The in the in the retells of the story, it's they saw the heavens torn open. They saw, so now it's becoming literalized. At first it's a visionary experience that Jesus has internally, and then it becomes an external experience that we could all see and catch on camera, which doesn't seem to be the way it's portrayed in this earliest account. Um, so Matthew is explaining
0: to me um, that uh, there, in Mark, which again there's consensus that is it is the earliest. There is no birth narrative, right? It just starts with Jesus as an adult being immersed and being and having this spiritual uh, anointing, anointing and awakening, which all echoes everything I read you from the scriptures, which everybody was that that was there. Common uh, framework, right? But also that uh, in our desire, as Matthew was telling me, to fill in the gaps, it will be the later narratives that say, "Well, what about when he was born?" You know, and <laughs> let's make this, let's expand this story from what appears to be essentially Jesus receiving an internal visionary spiritual call um, to what becomes a much more public and uh, kind of
4: supernatural uh, event. Yeah, and, well, and we'll see, and we'll turn in, in weeks ahead, we'll look specifically at the birth narratives and how they're essentially midrashim, um, and, and that we have two very different stories in those birth narratives. Um, what did I want to say about that, though? So, <laughs> so we're, we're, we'll look at that, but in Mark, um, We just began with the adult Jesus. And in the earliest layers of the tradition, there aren't accounts of the birth story. Paul, who's the earliest layer, um, writing in the 50s, never mentions a special birth. And the one reference to Jesus' birth, he says, he was born of a woman born under the law. You know, nothing to be seen here, folks. Like, that's how Paul says it. Mark begins with our adult Jesus. Who's from um, Nazareth. Who's from Nazareth. And then in um, the early saying sources, Q and Thomas, there are no references. So, we'll look at how these stories develop and, and how they're actually really beautiful as, as Midrash. Right. Um, but stay tuned. Um, and the other thing, you know, I, I'll ask you if you remember to bring this text back with you we just- because we want to. Or again, you can leave them with me here. Or right. leave them here. We want to keep Jesus in historical context. And so, this relationship at the beginning of his ministry to Yohanan the Dipper, to John the Baptist, is really crucial. Um, and this is also crucial to why Jesus and his movement was seen as politically threatening, um, destabilizing. Um, and so may- maybe I'll just leave you with a quote here from, um, from Josephus, the Flavius Josephus, first century Jewish historian. So he's one of the early sources that also records the stories of John the Baptist for us. So we have a reference to John. Um, that's not from the Christian Gospels, so that it isn't representing a Christian theological take, but Josephus's late first-century Jewish take. So he says, "This is the man that's dipping Jesus in the Jordan here." Now many people came in crowds to him, for they were greatly moved by his words. Herod, who feared that the great influence John, Yohanan, had over the masses might put them into his power and enable him to raise a rebellion for they seemed ready to do anything he, John, should advise. Thought it best, Herod, thought it best to put him to death. In this way he might prevent any mischief John might cause and not bring himself into difficulties by sparing a man who might make him repent of it when it would be too late. That's yeah, right in Herod's um, character. Yeah. So accordingly, John was sent as a prisoner out of Herod's suspicious temper to Machaerus, the castle I already mentioned, Josephus says, and was put to death. Um, so. We see John represents a movement among first century Jews that is seen as politically threatening to Herod. Jesus essentially inherits John's mantle. So we'll see in the Gospels, John is murdered in the Gospels as well, and Jesus takes up the ministry and keeps it moving. So from the beginning, this was a movement that, wow. the, that the authorities were fearful of because it might raise up rebellion. Um, so that just keeps us rooted in what's happening and why it's so important that Jesus goes to John at the very beginning of Mark's gospel, that's telling us something. And Jesus doesn't just have a conversation with him. Jesus submits to John's baptism. That's as if Jesus is being initiated into John's way, the Inici- way of John. In- initiated is the right word, that's right. Um, and so, anyway, that's, that's probably so clear. a place to, to begin pausing, but, we're seeing how Mark is shaping the story, the trajectory he's setting us on, and what he thinks is important for this initial framing. It's time to stop, it's time to stop. So what I wanna hand out to you, I'm just gonna pass these around, you can take them as you go. People ask for translation recommendations. If you wanna pick up the New Testament or read the Gospels during this study, where might you go? Um, I've put four translations on this little list that you might look at, just, Really quickly, one is the Jewish Annotated New Testament that Rabbi Jonathan is working with right here. It's just the New Revised Standard Version, which is read in most mainline churches today. Um, So it's a modern scholarly translation, but it has commentary by Amy Jo Levine and Mark Brutler. And so this is Jewish commentary. The the commentary is written by Jews, not by Christians. Um, So that's significant, the Jewish Annotated New Testament. I've also put the Restored New Testament by Willis Barnstone who's a poet, and so um, it's this lovely translation that we're looking from here where he's restoring the Jewish names, um, and he includes a few other Gospels like the Gospels of Thomas and Mary Magdalene in his translation. Um, The New Testament, that's the name of it, by Richmond Lattimore is another wonderful translation. He was a classicist. He translated the Odyssey and the Iliad, and so he was really acquainted with Greek, And he did a beautiful translation. I recommend his because it reads like a book. It's not riddled with verse and chapter numbers. And you can just like, you're reading a text, you know, that doesn't feel like I'm reading something in two columns with numbers all riddled through it. Um, And a similar one is the Unvarnished New Testament by Andy Gause. And he's done the same thing. He gives you a text that isn't riddled with verses. And um, he tries to peel back layers of doctrinal sort of interpretation in the text. Um, so here's here are the names of these translations if you want to pick one up as we read together well so we won't meet next week because it's Thanksgiving
0: so bless I hope you all have a a really really blessed and um, healthy and happy day and uh, we'll meet in two weeks
2: Right.